0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Matt Johnson, and I'm here today with Dr. Joshua Clark Davis, a professor of history at the University of Baltimore, to talk about his new book, From Head Shops to Whole Foods, The Rise and Fall of Activist Entrepreneurs. The book shows how 1960s and 1970s activists offered alternatives to conventional profit-driven corporate business models by opening up their own small businesses. It's a fascinating account that challenges the mistaken idea that activism and political dissent are inherently antithetical to participation in the marketplace. Dr. Davis, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks for having me, Matt.
0: I was was hoping today we might start with you just uh, reading a short passage from your book.
1: Sure, I'd be glad to. I'm going to start from page three, the introduction. So, operating in different areas of the country and selling different products for different reasons... The businesses in this book shared a critical commonality, one that placed them at odds with conventional notions of capitalism. The people who ran these enterprises touted social and political change, not profit, as their primary objectives. I examined four types of stores, black-owned bookstores, feminist businesses, environmentalist organic food stores, and countercultural head shops. These four businesses for all their unique features, represented a much larger movement of thousands of such companies across the United States. I call these individuals who operated such businesses activist entrepreneurs. They emerged from the social movements of the late 1960s and 1970s, and they believed that American society was sick from inequality, conformity, materialism, hypocritical, moralism, and alienation. American businesses not only exhibited the symptoms of these social illnesses, they argued, but they also reinforced and often created them. These unconventional business owners sought autonomy and independence from such sicknesses. With their small, politically informed, and often struggling shops, they offered alternatives to what they saw as the homogenous, discriminatory, and spiritually bankrupt consumer culture that they identified in chain stores, modern industrial production, and multinational corporations. Activists conceived their storefronts as antidotes to the alienation produced by America's dominant business and consumer culture. Just as new left groups such as Students for a Democratic Society and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee extolled what they called participatory democracy, the activist entrepreneurs in my book espoused what I call participatory economics. That was the idea that citizens could regain power over their lives by making their daily experiences in capitalist society more humane, authentic, and even politically progressive or radical.
0: You know, one of the things that that passage really brings out is that there, you cover so much in this book. You know, why why would you choose so many different movements? Because it's a difficult thing to do. Why, why don't you just kind of focus on black power or the feminist movement? What was really appealing to you to try to cover four or five different movements within this book.
1: Right. Well, first of all, I think I have a bit of a masochist impulse where I, uh, if I had thought this through a little bit more on the front end in terms of the workload, maybe I wouldn't have taken on so much. But uh, in all seriousness, I think what I wanted to do was to show that these businesses really emerged out of a wide range of movements from the 60s and 70s and that these businesses despite their similarities on the surface, or excuse me, despite their seeming differences on the surface. You know, a feminist business versus a black-owned bookstore. They had a lot in common, but I think from a larger perspective on social movements, I think there's a lot uh, to be gained from taking almost an ecumenical approach to looking at social movements in this era and pointing out similarities and differences, and uh, we talk a lot about intersectionality the intersection of race and gender and class and those things. But sometimes we fail to see how movements intersect with each other. And I think uh, it's difficult to do, but I think I, I pulled it off in this book by diving into the, the literatures on really five or six different movements and seeing how these movements are producing businesses that surprisingly have a lot to do with each other. And this is kind of an an unconventional story of the
0: 1960s. What what brought you to activist entrepreneurs?
1: Well, I came at it from a few different angles. Number one, when I started grad school, when I was starting this project in the mid-2000s, that's a long time ago now, but there was very little written on the 70s at the time. And the 70s interested me deeply. Uh, Not only because there was so little written on them, but because it really, the more I looked into the era, the more it looked like that was the flowering of the 60s protest movements. The way So many people have written about the decline of the protest movements at the end of the 60s or the early 70s. But what I saw throughout the 70s was the way in which these protest movements planted seeds in the popular culture that didn't flower until the 70s. And I saw the diffusion of social movement ideas uh, all throughout the entire 70s. And I thought that was a big story. I, I said, I want to try to track a way in which social movements of the 60s engendered broader and deeper pop popular cultures of the 70s. And I think what I settled on was looking at these stores, these businesses that are started by social movements, and the ways in which these stores kind of became vehicles for diffusing their ideas into the mainstream. And then, you know, just the final thing I'll say is that I got deeper into the project. I realized I recognized a lot of these businesses, even from the 1990s and 2000s. I recognized businesses like these that had continued the soldier on, or maybe they had been started in the 80s or 90s, but they connected back to this tradition. And it made me realize that this tradition of activist starting business was something that was still going today, but the history hadn't been written. And so I want to write it in order to not only give us a different view of social movements, but also to give us an unconventional view of businesses.
0: Yeah, when I read this book, you know, the 60s are often just filled with all of this hope. And as you said, the declensionist 1970s is kind of despair and, and lack of hope. But it's hard to read this book without continuing the story of, of hope for change into the 1970s. It's one of the great things about this book, I think.
1: Yeah, I think one thing that I, I wanted to come across is that um, a lot of activists become le- less involved with national campaigns or with major you know, marches that drew tens and hundreds of thousands of people. That, yeah, that did slow down in the 70s, but a lot of activists really turned to the local level. And there have been other uh, scholars who have written on this, but really the turn to the local is a lot of what this book is about is people taking their values from national protest movements and trying to implement them within four walls, a small business and a local community.
0: You know, the other thing that struck me about this book is that it's kind of an exa- it's an example of of what happens when you don't constrain yourself to the archive. I mean, would would you have been able to to write this book if you focused solely on archival material?
1: Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, uh, I did find useful materials in archives. Uh, there are virtually no archives devoted to activist businesses. There are a few small collections. Generally, if I went to an archive, it was to go into an archive devoted to a specific movement. Like at Duke University, there's a very, very impressive collection on second wave feminism. And buried in that collection, I could find certain folders about feminist credit unions or feminist bookstores. But I think uh, just as important, if not more important for this work, was oral history work. Um, And also the so-called underground press of the 60s and 70s, which just um, all the hippie and new left and countercultural papers that covered these businesses had ads for these businesses. And, And to be fair, even conventional newspapers who were really taken aback by the novelty of things like hippies starting a store or they treated a black owned bookstore as something deeply unconventional. So I relied on a lot of printed sources, but unconventional printed sources, uh, the underground, the oral history interviews, and then the archives. So yeah, it it wouldn't have been possible only with archival work.
0: Well, give us a sense of some of these people who you tracked down and
1: interviewed. Right. So I think one of the most fascinating stories for me was the story of Drummond Spear Bookstore in Washington, D.C. It was a, a group of civil rights veterans who came out of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Uh, Some of them were from D.C., but most of them are moving to D.C. for the first time after leaving SNCC. It's 1968. It's about a month after Martin Luther King had been assassinated, and the uprising had totally devastated sections of uh, D.C., and this group of young people coming out of SNCC uh, decides they want to open a bookstore that's devoted to Uh, basically literature and history by uh, writers of African descent. And the bookstore becomes very successful at first. They open a publishing company. They start publishing books. They start a distribution company to serve other black-owned bookstores. Uh, They're really at the forefront of kind of the intellectual side of the black power movement. And now the business only ends up lasting, I think, six years. But in its time, it really was a national... I would say, a national meeting place for the black power movement, not only in D.C., but people all over the East Coast, and even nationally, internationally kind of converged on this bookstore. So that's just one. Um, Yeah, there's plenty of others I could talk about if if we wanted to.
0: One of the things that that I liked about this is that, um, especially when you're talking about some of these black bookstores that are being created here, that, of course, there's this long history of black business owners and the idea of liberation through, uh, black ownership of businesses, but you know historically you, you you separate that sort of business ownership from the people who you're talking about, um, who are operating these bookstores and other businesses. How are how are these new people, activists, entrepreneurs, and the and the people in the past not so much?
1: Right. Very good question. So I try to draw the contrast, and I think most people, when they think of the history of black business, they naturally think of Booker T. Washington and what people have called the, the Washingtonian tradition, right? When you're teaching a basic introduction to U.S. history and you were talking about African-American history in the early 20th century, uh, Washington and Du Bois are often pitted against each other, at least for you know the simplicity of undergraduate lecture. We know they had a lot of similarities, but their differences were greater. And uh, Washington really emphasized economic participation over political participation and really kind of suggested a model of securing economic rights and economic self-sufficiency before political rights. And he died in 1915, but before he died, uh, around 1900, he established the National Negro Business League, which goes on to be the premier African-American business organization. And by and large, it's an organization that advocates political caution. I mean, even to the extent that in the 1940s, most of their members opposed anti-lynching legislation. They thought that would alienate um, Southern whites too much. So a store like Drummond Spear totally rejected that approach to black business. And Drum and Spear and other black-owned bookstores said we're not going to um we're not going to pursue political power after economic power. We're going to pursue them at the same time and we're going to own our blackness. We're not going to um try to downplay our racial identity. In fact we're going to embrace it and we're going to make black racial identity a central part of our business. And I think that was something that Washington generally wasn't comfortable with. He wasn't comfortable with African American business owners Marketing um, racial identity. He wanted them to, I think, more often than not, avoid questions of how racial identity might shape their business.
0: Yeah. When we think about the 1960s, anti-capitalists get a lot of attention, right? I mean, what gives these people so much hope in capitalism?
1: Well, I would make a careful distinction and say most businesses in the United States are capitalist, but not all are. If we think about There are businesses in world history going back thousands of years. But most historians would say, well, modern capitalism, at the earliest, it really emerges with the mercantilism of the 15th and 16th centuries. Other historians would say, well, no, capitalism doesn't even emerge until, say, the 1780s in England. All this is to say is that some of the businesses I looked at did not think of themselves as capitalist. And the reason why is that they didn't have capital accumulation as one of their main goals. Yes, they wanted to stay in business. Yes, they wanted to keep the lights on. But they weren't really interested in generating profits and reinvesting those profits in their business. And if they're not interested in profit-making, then they're not interested in one of the key factors, one of the key traits in capitalism. So what I'm describing is a number of businesses that are very minimally capitalist – or in some cases, I would say even non-capitalist. And that's, that's, I think, the opening they have here is that many of these businesses conceived of themselves more as nonprofits than as capitalist ventures.
0: But for these people who you know, describe themselves, whether as capitalists or non-capitalists, what, how do they see their participation as an entrepreneur as part of the movement? What, was, what were those businesses supposed to do for uh, the movement itself?
1: Right. Very good question. So the people who started these businesses, and I mentioned this in the book briefly, they very rarely use the word entrepreneur. I use the word entrepreneur to describe what they're doing, but they saw themselves as political actors, as organizers. And I think what they saw themselves as playing an ancillary but very important role in the movement. They kind of wanted to do three things. One, they wanted to change the products of American business. They wanted to put products out that forwarded the values of their movements and forward messages of their movements. Two, they wanted to create places reconceive of the places in American business. They called them safe spaces. We might today actually they called them free spaces. Today we would use a language more like safe spaces, but they wanted to create, you know, a business with four walls where activists could meet safely and organize and hold uh, meetings and things like that. And then thirdly, they wanted to change The processes of American business. They wanted to democratize workplaces and institute uh, more collective decision making. So they saw themselves not as an alternative to the marches and the petitions and the rallies, but they saw themselves as contributing to that mission, but doing it in a very public facing way that had the potential to, you know, be an important recruiting tool.
0: You know, one of the things that you point out in this book is that they, they introduced kind of new models uh, for what business could look like. Did, were there were there models available to them that they they looked to, or is this really something that they are creating just in the moment?
1: Well, some of both. Okay, so in a pre-internet world, I think uh, a lot of people have written about this, but how activists of the 60s and 70s often struggled to connect to earlier histories of act- activism and organizing and often felt like they were creating new uh, new movements out of whole cloth, even when they had plenty of predecessors. Often it felt like they were doing something new because they weren't aware of their predecessors, and it was, it was hard to discover that history. But some of them did know about businesses such as co-ops, which in the United States, their history goes back to the middle of the 19th century. And um, there had been labor unions that were deeply involved in co-ops, for example, the Knights of Labor were big backers of co-ops, and then in the 30s and 40s, unions were still big um, backers of credit unions and co-ops. So I think um, sometimes some of the activists I look at in the 60s and 70s were aware of those businesses. And sometimes also, um, for example, black-owned bookstores were aware of some of their uh, political predecessors. But I think generally, even if they did have predecessors, they weren't aware of them. And so it felt like they were doing something new to them, and they didn't really have models to to copy from. Generally, they didn't have access to their materials or have knowledge of their existence.
0: When, when you look at I mean, this, is a, a book about the rise and fall, so it's success, it success it suggests failure, right? But you know, what are the when you when you try to look at the successes of these particular people? How, what successes do you identify uh, in these movements?
1: So, I think the big success is more ideological and political than financial. Uh, That's one of the things I suggest in my book, is that a financial metric doesn't really measure the success of these businesses. I think in our society, in our economy, generally, most people consider a business that closes to be a failure. Well, businesses in this book, generally, even if they closed, their goal primarily was to spread a message of a movement, And many of them succeeded in spreading the message of their movement. So, for example, feminist bookstores play an absolutely critical role in spreading feminist literature and getting feminist messages out into the public. And you have books like uh, Our Bodies, Ourselves, right? The feminist um, health manual out of Boston, which becomes a huge, huge seller. Uh, You have books like The Autobiography of Malcolm X, which black-owned bookstores really um, help catapult to best-selling status but what you have i think also as a victory is businesses some of which lasted three five years but some of which lasted 10 15 20 25 years and these businesses showed that there are different ways to run a company that it is possible to have a company that's cooperatively owned that it is possible to have a company where uh, it's not just purely hierarchical management but some element of democracy governing decision-making. So that is, in my mind and in my book, a victory by showing that there are alternatives to what many economists and I think corporate leaders think is the only way to do business, which is the corporate model, which is a hierarchical model, which is a, a model based on maximizing profit.
0: You mentioned feminist bookstores. And so, you know, most of these chapters are structured around a particular type of store, head shops, uh, bookstores. Uh, and the one chapter on on the women's movement is an incredibly diverse array of businesses. Um, and so why, why uh, that chapter um, did you focus on such a wide array of businesses for that movement?
1: Well, I think what I wanted to do, first of all, what I discovered pretty quickly was that the feminist movement more than any other movement really grappled with the issue of activist businesses, that they deep and extended debates about what these businesses could and couldn't do. And so um, I wanted to cover that. But second of all, I wanted to cover a movement that was thinking very broadly about business um, in terms of business types, right? So there was no other movement I came across that experimented with so many different types of businesses. So, yeah, and if we're talking about the feminist movement, we're talking about not only bookstores, which I think most people are aware of. You know, a lot of people have seen Portlandia, and they've seen that kind of definition of a feminist bookstore, which, by the way, is a real bookstore in Portland. But, uh, you know, feminists started credit unions. They started jewelry shops. They started craft stores. They started mail order catalogs. They started restaurants. And there was no other movement that really experimented with so many types of businesses. So I, it got to the point where I thought it, it it made more sense to include that range as opposed to limit it to just one of those kinds of businesses.
0: Do you see one of these movements as being much more successful than another?
1: And it's a very tough question to answer. If I were uh, someone teaching in a business school, then I would say, well, the organic food stores are the ones that spread most widely are the ones that made the most money and they're the ones that maybe had the biggest impact in terms of changing people's diets on a on a fundamental level I think in the United States but if I were a political scientist or because I'm a historian of social movements uh, I would probably say that you know maybe feminist bookstores or black owned bookstores really were the most successful in spreading an ideology and diffusing ideas, right? So I'm making a distinction in how we measure a business's success. And I think uh, as a scholar, I really um, gravitate more to that second model of looking at these businesses as ideological vehicles, and therefore I primarily assess them in terms of ideological impact.
0: Mm -hmm. One of the stories, the underlying stories in this book that I love is that One of the things you're getting into is just how darn difficult it is to run a small business uh, for a lot of these people. And some of them just aren't very good uh, business people. right? But but I was wondering if, you know, aside from just the inherent um, problems uh, small business owners face, do these activist entrepreneurs um, have an extra set of difficulties inherent in in running an an activist uh, business?
1: They certainly do. And... I go into this a bit in the book in terms of explaining how these businesses generally try to hold themselves to a higher standard. Um, So, for example, just the process of uh, collective decision-making, consensus decision-making, right? Um, There's a phrase from, I think it came out of SNCC in the 60s, but uh, someone said, freedom is an endless meeting, right? And uh, endless meetings are, I think, part and parcel of many of the activist businesses I look at where they're very, the the, the, the deep focus on having a just and equal process makes the already difficult um, act of running a small business even more difficult and I think also um, so many of these people are balancing multiple lives some of them are devoted to their businesses entirely but many of them are still, you know uh, going to marches, going to rallies, going to meetings, and I think they're, uh, in a sense, multitasking in a way that perhaps some conventional business owners aren't. And so, yeah, there's it's just hard to run an ethical, uh, communally run, and politically minded business. Those are adding uh, priorities to small business ownership that aren't there in conventional firms
0: yeah you write it in the book that some of their contemporary critics um saw them as capitalist dupes, right, and so I was wondering how you would respond to that are these are these entrepreneurs dupes of any kind of capitalism?
1: Well, I think some of them quickly leave their movements or quickly grow out of their movements and they're not dupes as much as willing participants and making their once political businesses less political. And they see that as the way to making more money. And I think that's part of the big story of the natural foods business. And I think that's part of the story of, of Whole Foods Market, which is one of the big focuses of my book.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, that's a great transition because the next thing I wanted to ask was, you know, the, the title is From Head Shops to Whole Foods. Right. Why does Whole Foods occupy this bookend of the project?
1: Right. A lot of people say, what What are you doing with Whole Foods in the title? They're not activists. Well, first, uh, Whole Foods has changed tremendously as a business. They uh, were founded in 1978. The original store was called Safer Way. That was a critique of the store Safeway. Right. Safer Way was implicitly a critique of capitalism, of the environmental and health hazards of supermarkets. And the couple who founded the store, John Mackey and Renee Lawson, they came out of the environmental movement and really the hippie movement in Austin, Texas. And they ran this business, and it was quite unsuccessful for two years. They closed Safer Way In 1980, they merged it with a competitor and turned it into Whole Foods Market. And even at first, Whole Foods Market experimented with things like uh, profit sharing for its employees. But it became very focused on expansion after a few years. And John Mackey, the primary founder, he became very enamored with libertarian economic theory. And so there's a large shift that happens in that business where it leaves behind its roots in environmentalism, and I would say and progressive movements, and really moves rightward, even while it keeps some of its original features. Like, uh, for example, uh, new employees at Whole Foods, they have like a six-month probationary period. If they make it to six months, then their employees hold a vote and two-thirds of your fellow employees have to approve you to stay. From head shops to Whole Foods is really talking about a, a move away from the political ideals of the 60s and 70s towards a more profit-driven model. And it's also supposed to highlight the fact that so much of what people today called mission-driven business or social enterprise um, is, uh, I would say, a, 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 pay, a pale facsimile, a, a much maybe less politically rigorous facsimile of the businesses I look at from the 60s and 70s. -hmm.
0: What does it say about how easy it is to co-opt these sorts of businesses that you're looking at?
1: Well, I think the big thing that's easy to co-opt is not as much the businesses per se, but their message. And that's something I end in my conclusion by saying, for better or for worse, the biggest legacy of a lot of these businesses from the 60s and 70s is that they 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 came up with the language of liberation and social change through business? That major five, you know, major Fortune 500 companies with I think they started discovering in the 90s and then really in the 2000s, and they have just run with. And um, you know, one of the main companies, for example, is Apple. But the, I think there's something broadly appealing about economic activity that is benevolent or has positive impact on communities. That, um, by the late nineties, by the, you know, time of the anti-globalization movement and then the Occupy movement and, uh, you know, the early 2000 teens, a lot of companies have decided that that's a message that they also want to forward. And I'm not saying that none of these companies are sincere in doing it, but I think, um, it's very much in fashion now to use this language to justify one's uh, business activities. And even on like a smaller level, like artisanal businesses, like whatever, it could be a cheese shop, it could be a microbrewery, it could be a corner restaurant, but so many of them use a language of community engagement to describe what they do. Tell me
0: if I'm wrong, but you know my understanding of the, the distinction that you're making is that it's not that these corporations don't care at all about social justice. It's that profits are first, and social justice is maybe second, third, fourth, fifth down their priority line. And what makes your businesses unique is that justice is at the cornerstone. It is the first priority, and profits are second. Is that that the major distinction?
1: That sounds fair. Yeah, I think that describes a lot of companies. I would say that I think there are some companies that have very cynically embraced this message. But I think that what you're saying is more often right that uh, there's a prioritization of like the top ten or fifteen priorities a company has, and social justice maybe is closer to the bottom of the list, although it's not absent right yeah what is the
0: what what's the state of activist entrepreneurs or activist businesses in two thousand and seventeen
1: so there's actually been a bit of a revival, I think in the last decade, decade and a half, and part of it, as I mentioned, grew out of the anti globalization movement like WTO, that kind of stuff. Part of it grew out of uh, the anarchist movement, which is very connected to that. Part of it grew out of the Occupy movement. Part of it grew out of uh, just people trying to grapple with the economic downturn that really hit 2009. But what you'd have across the country now, it's modest, but it's identifiable. It's a resurgence in worker-owned companies. It's a revival in... Of interest in cooperative economics, um, there's a. I think there is a renewed realization that brick and mortar bookstores, especially ones that are community focused and politically focused, have a lot to offer that online booksellers can't. And I think there's just a lot of interest in trying to start these restart these businesses, and it's uh, it's a new generation doing it. But there are national organizations like Democracy Collaborative and DC which are at the forefront of promoting uh, these ideas, really of trying to make businesses that are more democratic and more just.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering for someone who might be thinking about starting or becoming an activist entrepreneur and picks up your book, it's easy to read your book as, my gosh, all these uh, businesses uh, go out of business pretty quickly and they're very difficult to run. You know, if you wanted to send a message to some of these people who might pick up your book, what message do you want them to get out of it?
1: I think the big message for anyone who wants to start one of these businesses is really to uh, to do your homework, and that means reading as much as you can online. That means dipping into a, a non like Democracy Collaborative and going through all of their resources. It means researching uh, non-conventional corporate models like the Benefit Corporation, which is now available in 35 states to companies that explicitly... Uh, commit themselves to having a positive uh, community or environmental impact. And I think probably most importantly, uh, networking with people who are running these businesses already, right? I think that's that's the big factor that's different now with the internet is that it's so much easier for people who are running these businesses to connect with each other across the country. And uh, I think that was something that was very, very difficult in the 60s and 70s was just the exchange of information about how to do these things. That would be my big message is um, try to get a sense of what you 're getting into before you get into it and build up personal and political connections with people
0: when, when you when you finish this
1: this book, which is
0: has kind of the rise and fall subtitle um, did you have some kind of hope uh at the end that activist entrepreneurs could create something really important in 2017 that there is some sort of challenge that they could make to big corporations and that's still possible uh in the world that we live in right now
1: I I do I am hopeful and I'm I'm not hopeful that activist businesses can um defeat major corporations or displace them, but I think they continue to offer an alternative and I think um, You know, we've got businesses in Baltimore, like we've got a a community-based credit union, a CFI, a community financial institution um, that was set up by employees of Baltimore City. And the idea, you know, one of their express objectives is to um, extend credit to lower-income citizens of the city. We've got a major uh, radical bookstore here in town called Red Emma's um, that has almost endless book talks political meetings uh, and it's a large space in which really virtually everyone is welcome I mean it's like uh, anyone goes in there uh, homeless people people who are addicted to drugs people who are activists people who are just looking for a cup of coffee and um, they have almost no expectations in terms of who they let them in and it's cooperatively owned and so that's just one city, just two businesses. But I think there. I do have some hope that these businesses ha- can have impacts on their community. Well,
0: the book is From Head Shops to Whole Foods, The Rise and Fall of Activist Entrepreneurs. I highly recommend it. Uh, Joshua Clark Davis, thanks so much for being on the program.
1: Thank you, Matt. Appreciate it.